Yo, mic check. What's up, everybody? You're listening to the Street Pricing Podcast, the only show where proven SaaS leaders share their mindset and mistakes in pricing so we can all stop guessing and start growing. Enjoy, subscribe, and tell a friend. Now, let's break it down with your host and sought-after slayer of bad pricing, Marcos Rivera. What's up and welcome to the Street Pricing Podcast. I'm Marcos Rivera, author, founder, and pricing coach. And today's guest, I'm taking a bit of a twist. I'm taking a left turn and I'm bringing on another pricing expert. So Bill Wilson is the founder and CEO of Pace Pricing. He's all the way in Nova Scotia, Canada. Bill, what the Halifax is going on, man? Welcome to the show. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much, Marcos. I'm super, super jazzed to be here. As always, you and I chop it up all the time. So I'm, I'm super excited to get to do this with an audience. Now, thank you. Thank you for uh, taking the time to come and join me today, man. Why don't you tell folks out there a little bit about who you are and what you do? So my name is Bill Wills. I founded Pace Pricing in 2021 because I really wanted to install good pricing practice in B2B SaaS companies. That's really what I wanted to do. I've spent 25 years in software. I've built and sold companies, primarily been involved in product, and I came up as a software developer. So it's a weird kind of place to find yourself knee-deep in pricing after all of that. But it wasn't really until I actually founded my my startup around that was sort of centered around quoting and pricing for B2B SaaS companies that I realized how messy the B2B SaaS pricing space was and how much people didn't understand their own pricing and how hard that is for them to even, if they don't understand it, they can't communicate it. And if you can't communicate it, your customers aren't going to understand it. And it just becomes that cycle. So I, that's that's sort of what really got me intrigued about pricing and, and digging in deep. So I love it, man. I love it. Nothing actually forces you to know your customers better and deeper than pricing, right? And really figuring out what yeah. makes them tick and selling that. We're going to get into a lot of that stuff today, man. So here's the breakdown. It's a very simple format, just like the book street pricing, we go into a rewind, we got play and we got fast forward. So rewind is all about, let's jump into the past. Let's talk about a pricing change that you were involved in or you led and just step us through like what happened and how did you figure stuff out? We'll save all the theory and stuff for the others. I want to get into what really went down and what happened. And then we're going to bring it back here to the present. We're going to talk a little about what are trends and patterns you see that are working today for pricing and some of those maybe ways to implement some of those new changes. And then we're going to get into the future, fast forward. So what's next? What's happening here? There's a lot of shifting and changing going on in in SaaS pricing. I want to hear your thoughts about what's coming down the pike. Does that sound pretty good? Yeah, let's do it. We're going to do that. I want to also come at you and we're going to end all that and get one of my favorite questions in of all time, which is what's your favorite jam? What's your favorite song? I want to hear it. Listen, it's, it's 90s hip hop. Big bonus points. Doesn't have to be. It could be whatever you want, but we'll save that for the end. Everybody good? All right. All right, man. Think about that. So let's, let's take it away. Let's jump in. Let's go into the past and let's talk about a pricing change. So, you know, doing what I do, I've been involved in a lot of them, but I was, I've been thinking about this question and I can't get into like who the client is, obviously, and things like that. But I want to talk a little bit about something that's been on my mind a lot lately. And it's a good example of this is, is around entitlements and how it can actually be a very, very impactful lever for companies. So I worked with this company. They were in, um, it's kind of like a, you know, I'll say it's like a booking software. So think like Eventbrite or, you know, that kind of, that kind of thing. Not exactly like that, but close. And they had a big problem in that, you know, most of their expansion was just straight through feature gating. There was no real value metric, so to speak, 
even though intrinsically there was one underneath, which is, you know, the number of events that get booked. So obvious first step was let's figure out a, are the breaks across features make sense? Like, are we actually solving a job in each of those packages and who is it for and all that kind of stuff. So we sorted that stuff out, but then we got into this idea of, well, how do we create some positive friction to move people from one to the other? We want to instill that feeling of, I want more of this, right? And so uh, we were working on this and we came up with, you know, what we thought were decent entitlements based on the number of events that were already being booked by their customers. So we, we started with that. We started with a percentage roughly of how many people we thought might hit the limit and what would that mean? And, you know, how would that make them feel like sort of all those emotional triggers? And we sort of settled on this idea of around 60 to 70% of their customer base should probably hit the limit. And I think that's a number that I think you and I have talked about before in terms of like, you know, what's a good sort of threshold there. And so it was like, it was maybe a little bit higher than that. And so we went out to market with it and we started testing and we found that while things were moving, a lot of people were still sticking around in that bottom package, which was a big problem. Because really what we want to do is move people into that middle package. So they did have three tiers of pricing and they just had a bunch of people hanging out, paying them very little money and just probably getting too much value for what they were paying. I think a lot of SaaS leaders are listening to that right now because they're probably seeing the same, the same things going on in their packaging, right? I always say, look, if you have 40, 50, 60% of folks hanging out in your entry plan and they're not moving up and they're not upgrading and they're not doing something, then there's something wrong. It's usually one of two things. It's usually that the entry plan is just way too damn generous. There's just too much stuff in there. They're happy. They don't need anything else. You also have a lot of different value going on in that entry plan for the same price. But that also the second thing is the jump to the next plan might be too far, meaning that the use cases that you're solving or the spend or whatever it is, is just not, not adding up for that audience. And so they're not making the jump. They're kind of making do in that plan for those that need it. So those are what the two most common culprits when I see too much hanging out in the entry plan. But you said something, I want to unpack this a little bit more because you said the word, you said positive friction. And it sounds like a weird oxymoron thing, right? Positive friction and all of this literature and talk about remove friction from your process, remove friction from your pricing. But you're saying, no, 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 we can have positive friction and it actually is helpful. Can you like um, give us your philosophy on what positive friction is and is not? So for me, I think of like you, friction can be bad, obviously, and there's you know bad, good, bad friction and good friction. So for me, good friction or positive friction is this idea that we know as SaaS founders or people who are building product, what makes companies successful, or at least we should. So when we have our customers in packages and as they grow, for an example, you know, we know if they hang around in that bottom package, they're eventually going to get frustrated with that making do and they're going to really feel that. But we know if they move to the next package, we're going to be able to either make them more efficient or operationalize certain things because we've got those features in there. And so my philosophy on that is, is that we want to understand when that tipping point is and then insert some limits to actually force the issue, right? Almost force the issue so that they understand that, okay, well, I'm at a hundred of these things now. And that means I'm probably at this size of a company or at this size of complexity. And we know for you to be successful in the long run, you need to be here. So I want to introduce a bit of that positive friction so that you feel like it's time for you to move up. I want them to feel like it's time. Now, I will caveat, it's not about putting limits in that don't let them get a job done. This is my most important thing. Those packages need to solve a use case and they need to solve it really, really well. and top to bottom, and they need to do it over and over and over again. And so I also look at positive friction from a value perspective. So if we think about sort of the three stages of value, 
we've got perceived value, realized value, and adopted value. So I want to get them way down into that adopted value phase where it's just now part of their every day. And then when they, you know, they're like, yes, I want more of this is kind of when I want to introduce that positive friction. I like it a lot. I think there's, it's interesting because the, the notion of, oh, well, you should set limits to get people to move up can actually have a negative connotation to it. It could make me feel like shit, we're taking away value or we're keeping them from getting to where they're at. And you're saying, no, 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 the limits should actually be beyond the value they should be getting in that package. They should get to where they want to solve the problems they need to solve those use cases. It's just getting beyond. And like you said, you said tipping point, which I really like that because it's really about just giving them that nudge and making them feel like, yeah, I'm ready to graduate from here and move on to something else, right? That's the key here. You don't want the sensation to be, ooh, I'm not getting what I want from this plan. Maybe there's a competitor out there who can give me more for the same price or something else, right? So that's the, the key there. If you come in and you cut them off at the knees to get what they want, then oftentimes it ends up with a negative effect, negative friction versus the sensation of like, I want more. Ooh, I've gotten a little bit more. Ooh, I'm getting further ahead now. And now you're just kind of nudging them down that path even further with those limits there. So you went in yeah. and you, you introduced e events, right? As part of this whole thing. Yeah, it was events. Yeah. So like number of events booked essentially. So how did that come? Uh, how, well, how was that received? At first it was okay, but we still found a lot of people sitting in the base plan. And so we decided to do some experiments. And this was what was fascinating to me. It was, I was working with a really, really fantastic founder who had tons of data and was very willing to experiment. And so we started toying around with the entitlements and it was sort of broken down into, let's say, you know, 10, 100 unlimited was sort of like, let's just say for round numbers, that was sort of the, the breakdown. Yeah. And we started moving those around. So I think it was, um, it was probably more like 50, 100 unlimited or something like that. So we decided to move the middle one up and the, as the first experiment to see if people were more intrigued by, okay, cool. Like I'll move into that one. If there's more, it had a slight positive effect. It didn't really have the effect we were looking for. They had, a, we had a few more percentage points, which probably could be accounted for across just error and timing and seasonality and like all that kind of stuff. Not, not enough to make it statistically significant. So the next experiment was we started pushing down the entitlements on the lower package and seeing if people would move up. And we did that. And as a result of that, we did actually have people starting to move into the middle package, but there was a little bit of that sense of this is a negative, right? They're like, I don't need this. I want more. I don't need the features you've got here. I'm only doing X of these things. You know, this, there was a little bit of that, um, but we also found now it was cannibalizing a bit of the unlimited package. So like people on our top end package, it was starting to just, they were just navigating into the, into the middle. And there was like six of these experiments. So I don't, I'm probably not going to get the order exactly right. But what we found there with that one is that there was a pretty decent lift in revenue. So if we took, you know, the conversion rate that was happening and the mix of, you know, that, and we extrapolated that out to say a thousand deals, we were seeing maybe like a 20, 22% increase uh, in MRR that could happen with that pricing structure, which was pretty nice. And, uh, you know, we just continued to experiment and then we sort of, we pushed the middle package down again and tweaked the outside one up again. And I know that you shouldn't change two variables in one experiment. So I believe they happened in separate experiments, but just for the sake of time, I will, I'll say those are the things we did. And that again, had another positive impact. And we kept experimenting until we got to the levels that we doubled MRR. Wow. So we actually doubled MRR based on these changes and we got the right percentage mix that we wanted in the packages. So we had the majority of people moving into the middle package and the main package was starting to, you know, normalize. And the 
top end package was still sitting like it was, you know, it honestly, the top end package isn't differentiated quite enough yet as they build out features and functionality that's going to happen. But uh, for those people that do need a lot of that, uh, multi, I think it was multiple locations and a few other things that happened to, had to happen there. It was still, I think, was making up about five to eight percent of their split. And we had about uh, 65, 70 percent of people sitting in middle package and everybody else was down a little lower. We're in the process now of measuring the migration speed of people who do go from the lower to like the expansion speed. Oh, um, the migration it, speed, something that a lot yeah. of people don't pay a lot of attention to, I think. I got to get back to a couple of things you say here because you doubled MRR. Now, I don't know how many SaaS leaders listening to this would love to double MRR, but I'm pretty <laughs> yeah. sure it's all of them, right? And you did this through an experimentation style that you ran. You said six plus experiments and mm-hmm. you were kind of tweaking these limits up and down. Just That's to, all we were changing, yeah. Yeah, and just to kind of get the right sort of, in, uh, you know, incentives and, and motivations within the plan. And a lot of things people don't realize is that pricing is about how you influence behavior and how you change your model can change some of the decisions your customers make in what they use, what they upgrade to, what they reach out to, what they don't do. All those things have an impact. So these these experiments are, are valuable. So if I was a, a SaaS founder sitting in front of you and I said, Bill, I want to do that too, man. What data <laughs> yeah. will I need? What data do I need yeah. in order to get that done? Well, you really need to understand two things I think are most important. One, you need to understand the jobs your customers are trying to get done so that you can really identify which lever is going to be the right in terms of entitlements. So I think that's a big deal. And I, I, don't, I don't think people pay enough attention to, to the sort of the job that someone's trying to get done or the, you know, said, maybe said another way, use case that they're trying to solve in a package. We often get stuck in this kind of bronze, silver, gold mentality of, you know, or just basing it on size or something else. So I do think that packaging should, should be split across, you know, the very first thing they need to solve and then what's the next thing they need to solve, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's the first thing you need to do is you need to understand the jobs. The second thing though is that you need a lot of data. <laughs> you need a lot of data around how your customers behave inside your product. So feature usage is really, really important, understanding which things they use, which things they don't, and how often. And then combine that with if you are going to start to figure out which value metric you're going to tweak, you need to be tracking it and you need to be tracking it for a little while. So like I said, this founder in particular was a very data-driven founder, which I absolutely love. And when I showed up and we were working together, he already had a lot of data that was able to provide and we were able to go deep really quickly. But I've worked with others where they don't. And so the first thing we do is say, cool, you should install Mixpanel or something like it. And you should really start collecting data and we'll see you in three months. That's what I would say you need. It's like you need really need to understand the jobs. You really need to understand how people use things and how often. And then you need to understand how those value metrics, you know, you need to really pay attention to those value metrics and tracking them over time. And ideally they would end up being your North Star um, at some level. Like we need to move that forward. And then you need a temporal element on all of that. You need probably at least three months of data and more obviously is better, you know, one to two years, I would say is great. But if you don't have that luxury and you, you do want to actually get into that, I would start collecting data now. A lot of people don't connect data to pricing and they think of it as a bit of an afterthought, just almost like sometimes they think pricing is an afterthought. I would say this is like a, an order of magnitude less important to a lot of SaaS founders. But if you can start tracking data from the beginning, you are streets ahead of so many people in terms of what you can leverage when it comes to pricing and packaging. Amen to that. Amen to that. Thanks. My last point point on it, though, is this, is that the thing that you touched on already is that pricing changes don't have to be prices, right? Like changing how you sell something or how you package something 
is just as good as changing the price. So I feel like that is another thing that people talk about a lot. It's just like, how much should I charge? It's the wrong question. It's how do you charge? And I think this proves it. Absolutely does. How you charge, just as important, if not more, on how much. And everyone's so focused on the how much, forget about uh, digging into the how. So everything you said made beautiful, beautiful sense in that sequence, right? The jobs, understand those jobs. Then you want to um, you know, get that usage data in and you want to start tracking that over time. But if I'm a founder, I'm going to take you one step deeper, okay? Do it. I'm, I'm right in front of you. I don't have data. Bill, I, I don't have data. I don't know what the jobs are. What do I do? Where do I start? And, you know, short of open up a freaking Excel spreadsheet and start writing down the jobs that they want to get done in each of those packages by each segment. What do you tell someone who's just like, I need to get going, but I don't, I don't have any of that stuff, Bill? Build a baseline. I would just say, just get the data you have, put it together and just try and establish a baseline and then experiment. There you go. Do change something, but don't change everything and then just monitor it. And that will force you to start to get good data practices in place. But that's something simple you can do. It's the most, it's really fascinating to me that most people don't understand where they are today. And so yeah. I think if you can understand where you are today, again, you are going to be streets ahead of most people and you'll be thinking about pricing in a different way. So I'm not sure who said it and I probably should know who said it, but you know, what gets uh, measured gets managed just by the simple act of looking at the, the baseline and looking at the things that go into that baseline even just the data you have, as you start to monitor it, you will start to change it because it's now top of mind and it's going to be things that you're going to want to focus on. That's my advice is just start, is get a baseline, change one thing, and watch what happens. There's no surefire way to build confidence than one step at a time. That is concrete to me, man. Change one thing, right? Put it together and watch it. That's all. Start, but you can start small. But start is the key to this whole thing, right? Yeah. And that's one of, yeah. I think a lot of folks get a little bit worried. They don't even start because they think it's this monumental thing. Nope. Keep it one variable, get in there, you know, list some jobs, just get going and start and yep. build from the baseline. And if you don't have the Absolutely. baseline, then that's sort of that first nudge to, uh, to keep walking down, man. I love, I love this because it's so practical and you've seen it over and over again. And so I think big takeaways here, if you had to give everybody like the one thing they should remember in that pricing experiment, what should they take away? Yeah, it's a good question. It might be a little bit too abstract, but I would say that when you think you have it, go another step because we were quite happy with where we were after like experiment two, I think. And then the question was like, well, what if we changed this? What would that do? And it's like, well, since we're already in the experimenting mindset, we were like, all right, let's run it and ran the experiment and ran the experiment and ran the experiment. So you will never, I guess it's this, you will never have the right pricing model, right? You'll never have the perfect pricing model, I should say, but you'll have a pricing model that works. And I think that's more important than trying to aim for perfection. So making something work is an iterative process. So I think that's the thing is like, it's not one and done. I oh, guess man. sort of like working through my own thought process on that. I, I'd say that's what it is. It's like, it's not one and done. Continue to iterate, continue to examine as you add value, go back to the, the thing, your, challenge your assumptions. So that's what I would do. Yeah, I think that's really sage advice for everybody here, especially you said something really important, which is say you made a change and you got five or 10% lift and you're like, oh, I'm done. I'm done. I've, I've solved the pricing puzzle, right? It's not one and done. And you kept pushing and you got to double your MRR. Think about that, guys, right? They, doubling MRR versus a 10, 10 to 5% change is fine. It's great. Yay, right? High five. 
but doubling MRR and then you continue, you're not even done yet, right? You probably think there's other ways to improve and tweak. And I always say this, right? Your, your product's changing, your customers are changing, markets are changing, competitors are changing. So you have to keep pushing and finding those improvements because you want to find what works, not what's perfect, but you also want to continue to make it work better and better over time. I think, you know, hands down puts the nail in the coffin of, Pricing is one and done, right? Do it once and then forget about it, man. Listen, that was fantastic for, for everybody listening. I'm going to bring us back now to the present. What's working now pricing strategy-wise? What's really yielding results today? What are you seeing out there as you know, really good, good tips and best practices in pricing? I think the thing I'm seeing, the, the shift I saw this year, and I guess it sort of happened over the last couple of years, is just this shift to more focus on expansion. So I think the things that are working are price increases that are strategic and not blanket. So you see a lot of companies out there at the beginning of this year, maybe at the end of last year, we're kind of doing uh, full on blanket price increases across the board with no just sort of, I don't want to call it SaaSflation or whatever people are saying, but like there was kind of just an element of like, we're going to raise everything 10% because everything's going up. And you know, that can work. And for a long time, you could walk into a company and say, raise your prices by 10% and you'll raise your top line by 10%. That's not the case anymore. So I think what's working now, though, is this focus on how do we get more money from the customers we have? So focusing on net dollar retention, what are our expansion pathways? And to me, that always boils down to how do we make our customers successful? I always say that if you can get fully aligned on your customer's value, then everything you do inside your company will be to reinforce their value and therefore they will grow. And if you can do that over and over again and your value metric is aligned with it, then you're going to get expansion. And so you need two things to get real good NRR, NRR, right? You need in-package expansion of some kind. So people moving from tier to tier, or if you're kind of in a core and more or an expansion or a platform plus extension model, you want people to be adding in more modules, right? So that's sort of your, your traditional expansion. But then that value metric, you have to be, that has to be going up over time. And ideally, it's something you get to impact. There's a lot of cases, I think, with companies that have value metrics that they don't really control, but at the same time, it's their closest thing they have. So they have to go with it. Uh, it can make your metric a little lumpy sometimes, but I think it's still important. So those two things I think are most important. Have a value metric that's going to grow with your customer, align yourself around delivering that value over and over and over again and helping them get there and uh, have good in-package expansion. And those two things, I think, are what's working. And I mean, I think that's probably like saying, you know, good pricing strategy is what's working, but the focus on net dollar retention right now from VCs and from companies, because they can no longer be burning the way they were burning, you know, the, the things are starting to, to strengthen again a bit now, but still like bottom end of the market's really low. Like there's still a lot of like just acquisition is just down, you know, across the board on everyone. So we can't rely on acquisition to get us there. And we need to rely on the customers we have. No, man, new deals are not enough. New deals are not enough. And, and you said it right. I think those key things do work. Value metric that grows, which I think a lot of folks are a little afraid to do because they feel like it adds too much complexity to the model and may introduce friction in the sales process, right? Which if you do it in a, in a sort of blunt, uninformed way, yeah, it kind of will do that. I also think that in package growth, be, uh, beyond just also the add-ons and modules, other way to growth, right? But if you have all these things in play, that's how you get to the 125, 135, 145 net uh, revenue retention. So many SaaS folks probably listening to this are probably at 100, 105, trying to figure out how do I get to that 125, 135 range. And you just told them how to do it, right? So break it down in those key ways, which, which I think is important to also t uh, touch on another thing here, because I always found that the ability to raise prices 
is one of the most underutilized on the base, underutilized techniques out there, right? Company after company that we work with or talk to says, hey, yeah, we haven't raised prices in six years or in eight years, right? I'm like, great, did you add any value to your product in that six or eight year time frame? Oh, hell yeah, we added a lot, right? So, but they're just really nervous about how to do that. And the key thing that I tell everyone, and you pointed it out right now, I'm just gonna reemphasize it for everybody listening, is that the secret to a really good price increase to the base that you get a good value on your side, but you don't get a lot of attrition and noise on the other is segmentation, is treating different uh, groups of customers very specifically, right? That blanket approach of 10%, 5% across the board, that'll get you something, get you some noise, right? You get a modest bump. And a lot of PE and VC firms actually have that in their playbook and they do it all the time and they're moderately successful. They probably end up with 3.4% average you know, increase after doing all that. But if you take the time to break down your audience into those that are getting a ton of value, those that aren't really getting that much, those that maybe haven't changed pricing in forever, and those that maybe just had a change in the last couple of years, whatever that is, you want to make sure that you break them up into those buckets and you're able to extract a lot more value in those buckets and mitigate risk a lot better. I just talked to a company yesterday. They raise prices and use the segmentation technique I just talked about. They had 5,000 customers, 5,000 customers. They raised prices 20%, Bill, Nice, 20%, all right? That's and great. guess what they got? 16 email complaints out of 5,000 accounts, 16. It's ridiculous, it. right? Yeah. They were worried, they were scared, they did it. 16 email complaints out of 5,000. So yeah. don't be afraid to do it, but take the time to segment and understand them. To go back to your point about understanding the customer, and you'll be a lot better off on the other end. I'm going to take us to the last piece of this, which is the fast forward. So what's happening next in pricing and pricing strategy? What do you see as a future trend coming down? Maybe it's largely already here, but there's definitely this push on hybrid PLG, you know, I think is a big deal. Sales-led growth, product-led growth, or sales-led product growth. You know, I don't know how they say it, but this idea that you have product-led, but you also have the sales the sales component of it. And I think it's really, really important. So I think optimizing for that and giving your sales teams the levers they need to get deals done. And I don't mean just random discounting and things like that. I mean, strategically thinking about how do you incentivize larger deals? And that's usually what happens inside those hybrid models, I find, is that there's the self-serve, product-led, you know, but it gets to a certain point where you need to have some hand-holding or some good salesmanship or a guide how to do this properly. And I think that's where the sales teams come in. I think that's present slash future. I think the other future thing is, is we really need to figure out how to price AI. Mm. This, is, yeah. this, is, this is a big deal. And you know, some of our counterparts are talking about this a lot. And the, just the idea of like, how do you do it? How do you do it well? I think there's a lot of pricing out there on AI right now that is completely disassociated from its value. I don't really understand how a token has any value to me at all, right? They, I don't even know I what a token is. It's not even a word. It's something else. Like what? Like, I'm sorry. I get it. It's early days. We got to figure out something because it's very, very expensive to run. And it's it's the probably one of the first times outside of storage that we have a real cost of goods sold in software. You know, like a real tangible, the more you use, the more we, more it costs us as SaaS companies. And I think figuring that out is what's next. I also think there's an element around that on the AI front is like just making sure, you know, in pricing and packaging is how do you leverage it either against your competition, with your competition, you know, with your customer, against your customer. Cause I was listening to something today and they were talking about like, you know, your customers are actively looking to replace you with AI. If you're a software solution today in business, 
your customers are actively looking to replace you. So we got to get on that. And so uh, resisting it isn't the right approach. It's got to embrace it, figure out how you can use it. And uh, I know I'm sort of switching into product mode here, but from a pricing and packaging perspective, it, it matters. You've got to make sure. I don't know about you, but I was looking at Microsoft Copilot today. And if I'm, right, if I'm wrong, it's only available for Microsoft Enterprise customers. You know, That's, something like it, that. That's where they like, start. You, you'll see this pattern, right? I mean, it's, they'll, they'll give a limited access and then what they'll do. So what you're doing is you're charging at the access point, kind of figuring out the use cases, uh, the prompts, the questions, all those the queries that are coming in. Yeah. The token element comes in afterwards. The usage sort of consumption element comes because of the cost metric. It's too big to ignore. Over time, though, I imagine that's going to start coming down. And that's where 100%. I think the, the model is going to start switching. And I think hybrids are here to stay. I don't think it's hype. I think hybrids are here to stay. I think that's where a lot of the most creative models that are successful are going and, and have been seeing a lot of success. So I'm a big fan of, of hybrid models, some level of you know giving access and uh, measuring value in, in the consumption way and sort of using a great, a great model that kind of gives the right incentives to, uh, uh, to the customer, I think that's the way to go. Finding it's trickier and goes back into your point about experimentation, right? Man, th- this was a whole masterclass in, in thinking through pricing, man. So, super thoughtful, oh, as always. And Bill, listen, man, thank you for coming on and bringing that knowledge, just taking it to the streets, getting real, breaking it down, even giving real numbers and first steps for everybody here listening here. But I got to get to my favorite question of all. All right. My favorite question of all is what is your favorite, your all time favorite jam, man? Favorite jam, 90s hip hop or otherwise? Well, what is it? So I've been asked this question before and it's always, it's always a challenge. I, I, I do like a lot of different music. My wife always complains that I just listen to EDM all the time. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I was debating whether it was going to be a Miley Cyrus, you know, one of her 80s tunes oh. or one of her 80s inspired tunes or, but I think given the topic we're talking about today, it's got to be Macklemore, uh, Thrift Shop. Thrift Shop. Oh, yes. Yes. I love Thrift yeah. Shop. Excellent. Macklemore. Other fans out there would high five you for that one as well, Bill. And again, a big high five for me for coming in here and just dropping these knowledge bombs. I think folks are going to take a lot away from this. And team, thank you also for tuning in. And remember, shift your pricing from guesswork to framework. Please stop the guessing and start growing. Until next time. Thanks, Marcos. Thank you and much love for listening to the Street Pricing Podcast with Marcos Rivera. We hope you enjoyed this episode and don't forget to like and subscribe. If you want to learn more about capturing value, pick up a copy of Street Pricing on Amazon. Until next time.